0: John?
1: i'm doing well thanks for having me back on the show
0: absolutely i've been uh, looking forward to having you revisit for quite some time and i thought this would be a good time for it after kind of a little hiatus from the show um so we'll just do the usual structure and i'll i'll just kick it off uh well actually i was is you've been um since last time you might notice that john bateman's uh voice has grown um more mature and deep and husbandly uh, as he is now a married man and that's uh yeah. i mean uh, married to the current uh dungeon master of uh our little campaign which is no coincidence they've been playing together for quite some time uh that as you uh have you found that that has matured you and brought you to a new stage of your life
1: being married or playing D and D with my wife. Uh, I'll say being married, but all right, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, d- I definitely think so. It's. Like, I was kind of playing at being an adult through college, you know, like, hey, I'm independent and, ma-, you know, ordering my schedule and stuff like that, but, like, I wasn't taking care of, like, cell phone bill or car insurance or yeah. things like that, and I know a lot of my friends were doing that throughout college, but just, I was, you know, blessed my parents were still helping me out with that. Well, now I'm married, and yes. <laughs> we're kind of you know kind of trying to navigate that and she works full time and I am a GSA for the history department here mm-hmm. at Liberty and doing my masters so I get paid for that but not not equivalent to you know full time work but I also get school for free so it's kind of a trade off but yeah I definitely think that it's forced me to kind of reevaluate how I spend my time how I spend money etc because yeah. like it's not mine anymore I have a joint bank account it's ours yeah. And that's a different perspective. It's gotta feel good to have like
0: teamwork in your life, rather than just like you're kind of out there.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. it's pretty great. It's great coming home at the end of the day and not like sitting in my my room in my apartment alone because yeah, <laughs> I'm married. Yeah. I don't sit in my room alone. I have a wife. Yes. Speaking of uh not being alone,
0: we're recording this in the library, so you might hear some the hoots and hollers of college students which just consider that a window into my personal life as <laughs> you know we're to be authentic so that's what it's been like around here um so I'll, I'll kick it off with the first question here and this is something that um I've gotten into more recently and that's comic books this is a comic book based question um when I was in grade school I had a friend who was very much into comic books uh and he would, like, show them to the people in the class every now and again. I'd get a chance to to look. Um, and I particularly... Iron Man was someone that... And I'm, not, I'm just saying this because he's, like, so popular right now. But Iron Man was, like, so cool to me as, like, a... Kind of like what I wanted Batman to be. was just, like, you have all this money. Like, why don't you just purchase, like... A super awesome... He's got
1: inner demons, but he's not super angsty about it all the time, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. He still gets to have fun. Yeah,
0: he's a cool dude. And uh, that appealed to me in the third grade. Um, And then when I was... I think it was like my fourth or fifth grade birthday, um, this kid got me the first... I think it was the first issue of the Civil War, and it was Iron Man and Spider-Man on the cover, and... it opens up with, like, the, like, the TV show superheroes, like, chasing down the bad guys, and then, like, the bad guys are, like, don't you have any idea, like, you're playing with the big boys now, and they, like, blow up, like, a neighborhood of of people, and it just, like, I'll never forget that issue of comic books. I had no idea it was gonna, like, get heavy, you know? Yeah, it got so heavy, and then they're, like, like, cleaning up the mess, which is just not something you see superheroes do, really, ever, is, like, in the wreckage, like, pulling rubble, like, rebuilding buildings, like, you, you see, like, the glory of it, um, and that was just huge for me, and I didn't, that was the first comic book I read uh, cover to, to finish, and I loved it, and I uh, didn't read comic books for a while until um, just recently I picked up uh, two comic books um, that both are the same artist, uh, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Watchmen, um, and Watchmen, particularly, was just amazing, um, and it just really sparked my interest in the comic book a genre that I, frankly, didn't have a ton of respect for in the past, uh, and I was just wondering, to, for you, um, just tell me a little bit about your history with comic books, um, maybe a favorite issue, and, um, like, w- like, what's special about the comic book genre as, like, an art form, what makes it different from books and movies are. Right.
1: So, yeah, I actually came much later to the table on comic books. I got into comic books in college. I didn't read them at all growing up, Um, but I got into them in college mostly because I liked the comic book movies that I was seeing. So, like, um, Avengers came out my first semester of college, and, you know, that was huge. Um, And I was talking to some friends of mine who were into comics and you know, the end of Avengers, there's this giant purple guy, you know, in the post credit scene Mm -hmm. going like, Oh, I'll have to do it myself. Yeah. And I was like, who's that? Who's that? And they're like, Oh, that's Thanos. And I like, I wanted to know these things and I, you know, like they did and know who these people were. And I felt like a fake fan for not doing that. And that's, I think, a very superficial viewing of it. If you watch the movies and don't read the comic books and really enjoy watching the movies, I will never call you a fake fan for that because it's one thing to be like, oh, I'm such a huge fan of The Hunger Games. I've only watched the movies. I haven't seen the books because it's roughly a one-to-one conversion. They turned the book series into a movie series and to just say that you like the movies is maybe a a little shallower of a depth of being a fan of that thing when it's like that. But for comic books, the movies really aren't the comics. They're taking the characters from the comics and putting them in new situations. Even things that have similar titles like... Um, Civil War, you know, Captain America, Civil War. Um, you were describing the setup for Civil War in the comics. It's very different from Civil War in the movies. They took similar mm-hmm. ideas and the same characters, but um, it worked out very differently. A lot of the things that I thought were issues with the actual comic book storyline, they fixed in the movie. I liked how they did that a lot better. Yeah. But um, So, yeah, that's kind of my experience with comic books was friends who got me into it in college. I went to the local comic book shop here, and I set up a pull list, which is basically like a little cubby behind the um, counter where the guy who owns the comic book shop every month sets aside the comics that you want in your box. So when you come there, you just grab them out of the box and they're already like saved for you. And it's a good business model because it means that he knows roughly how many copies to order of any given comic. Mm. And you get to make sure that you get the issue and that it doesn't like sell out on the shelf before you get there. Um, Because new comics come out on Wednesdays. We're recording on a Wednesday. I'm going to pick up my comics for the week after we get done recording. Nice. But, um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into comics. And I started off reading, like, two Marvel comics and four DC comics. And honestly, now... One, I've pared down the number of comics I read a lot just because of money concerns. But right now, I think I read three Marvel comics and the rest are various different independent comics that I've... Dropped DC, c- huh? yeah, um, <laughs> I was The only DC thing that I was still reading was Batman and I was really enjoying that. The ac- Actually, the, the last arc of Batman before they just started a new universe, the DC Rebirth, mm-hmm. which that's why I stopped reading. I was like, all right, this is a convenient place to hop off. Yeah. But that last <laughs> arc before that, the whole setup is that Bruce Wayne has lost his memory um, after fighting with the Joker. And so he's still Bruce Wayne, and he knows that. And, like, people tell him, like, hey, your parents were murdered in front of you when you were a child. And he knows that, but he doesn't have the memory of it. So it doesn't affect him psychologically the same way. Mm -hmm. It's like hearing about what happened to someone else rather than the same thing. And so the whole idea behind that is that Bruce Wayne becomes Batman because he can't get over the trauma of his parents' death. And he has to... He feels the need to avenge that or to stop that from happening to other people, et cetera. If that goes away, then there's there's no Batman. Um, but then Gotham starts going downhill because there's no Batman. And so Commissioner Gordon goes to, like, the mayor and says, listen, there needs to be a Batman, and since Batman's missing, because, you know, everyone else doesn't know Bruce Wayne's Batman, but they know that Batman hasn't shown up in several months. And he says, you know, Batman's an important symbol for the city. We need to, like, make a deputized Batman. Like, the identity will be secret, but Batman will work for the police department. And the mayor says, that's a good idea. Also, there's literally nobody in this city that has the moral fiber to do this besides you. Commissioner Gordon, oh, I need you to be Batman. Really? And yeah, and so that's the arc awesome. is Commissioner Gordon as Batman. <laughs> and it's really interesting um, because it does it plays with new things of like that but so anyway so I don't say this oh, to weird. say that I'm opposed to DC or whatever but they had just restarted their universe and it was kind of a convenient place for me as I was paring down yeah. titles yeah. to do that also I think DC rests on its laurels a little more than Marvel does um, I'll get into that a little when I talk about my favorite comic, but, like, DC has unquestionably the most famous superhero characters. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Like, Iron Man, Captain America, Spider-Man are all big characters, but honestly, with the exception of Spider-Man, they weren't as famous before the movies. Definitely. Um, whereas Superman is, like, the iconic superhero. So, as a result, DC pl- does a lot with those recognizable heroes, but they haven't necessarily, I don't, I think been innovating as much recently because they have this grand tradition, but there's also like only so many Batman stories you can tell before you kind of run out of things for Bruce Wayne to do. Like that's why you make commissioner Gordon Batman for a while is so that you have new stories to tell. Marvel, I think has been innovating a little more and putting in new heroes. And that actually, that's my favorite comic that I'm reading now. It's one of the comics that I've picked up from issue one Um, when it, like, first came out and was like, you know, I'm going to pick this up and see if it's any good because it sparked a whole lot of controversy before it even came out, just the announcement of the concept, and that's um, Miss Marvel. Um, the comic, and that's not yeah. to be confused with the original Miss Marvel who is now Captain Marvel, which is the person Carol Danvers. That's who the movie Captain Marvel is going to be about. Yeah. It's about Carol Danvers. She's originally Miss Marvel in the comics. She kind of grows up because she starts out as kind of younger and now she's you know middle-aged and she's been promoted, basically, to Captain Marvel. Um, So the new Miss Marvel, although the title of the comic is just Miss Marvel. I know, comics are confusing. (laughs) But the new Miss Marvel um, is named Kamala Khan, and she's a 16-year-old teenager living in Jersey City. So, like, right on the other side of the river from Manhattan, Yeah. but, like, kind of the seedier side that, you know... All the superheroes live in Manhattan in the Marvel Universe, right? Spider Man, all those people—they're all New York superheroes. She's over in New Jersey. Um, she's also the first Muslim American superhero. Uh, huh. So she's a teenager and she's a Muslim American. And the um, first issue of the comic is like her wearing like the Miss Marvel logo on a T-shirt, um, and then she doesn't wear a headscarf typically in the comic, but like the scarf around her neck, yeah. and you can't see her face. Um, in like, the original one. And so like, that promo image got shared around the internet and people were like, oh, there's social justice, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. people got really mad about it. Um, but I really love the comic. Um, for one thing, I think Kamala Khan is the Spider-Man of this generation, which is to say like in the 1960s, like, Peter Parker was the first like, teenage superhero who wasn't a sidekick, and that was a big thing at the time, mm-hmm. was like, all the teenagers in comics were sidekicks. But he was the main character, and he was treated as if his issues were main character issues rather than side character issues. So him having trouble at school isn't a side plot, you know, that Robin's going through in a Batman story. It's the main thrust of his life because that's what he's going through. And um, so in the way that that's what Spider-Man was for the 60s, I think Kamala Khan is a representative of that for our generation, which is more, in America anyways, more diverse than any generation before, um, both ethnically and religiously. Yeah. And um and I think that she represents that really well. And kind of the whole setup is that she is a huge fan of the Carol Danvers Miss Marvel. And so yeah, when yeah, she yeah. gets superpowers, she uses them to help people because like this is her you Id- know her mm-hmm person that she's looked up to but um, it's significant like the first issue of that comic the first thing she does with her superpowers isn't actually to like stop a bad guy or like beat someone up it's to save this girl from her high school who's just been like Really mean to Kamala throughout the whole issue. She's like the standard blonde, white, pretty, popular girl, and making fun of Kamala because she can't eat the same foods at lunch because they're not halal, which is you know the Muslim version of kosher. Yeah. And um, she dresses more conservatively. Her parents won't let her go to parties. Like all these things that people who have conservative parents, even who aren't Muslim, like can probably re- resonate with some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this girl's just been mercilessly picking on Kamala throughout that for the issue. Um, and then Kamala. Sees this girl like wandering off from a party where she's clearly drunk and she falls into the river and is drowning and that's like the first time that she has the opportunity to use her superpowers and she's standing there and she kind of flashes back to a time where she is sitting in the mosque listening to the teacher talk about a passage in the quran where it says um he who helps one man it is if he has saved all of humanity and like her faith is what drives her to be a hero. Yeah. And I think that with all of the controversy in America right now over Islam and radical Islam and Syrian refugees and immigrants, I think the message that people can be motivated by their faith to do heroic things, to do good works, is important. And that um, comic doesn't shy away from talking about issues a lot. Yeah. Um, there's a whole arc where she's fighting... People with superpowers who are using them for bad things, and she says that she gets really mad about this because she's like, "I'm tired of being lumped in with other people who do terrible things." You know, mm-hmm. when that's not me, and it's clearly, obviously, a metaphor for the way that Muslims in America get treated sometimes. And um, the comics, also outside of having that element of social commentary, is also just really clever and witty. The comic or the, um, the art always has little Easter eggs in the background. So, like, there'll be a pigeon wearing glasses flying by in the background um, or just, like, things that shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, you see they don't have McDonald's. They have Olmec Donald's, and it's, like, a Mayan-type design. <laughs> yeah. or there's just a lot of really funny puns in the artwork, yeah. Etc. But So that's my favorite comic um, currently and has been my favorite comic for probably the, la- the last two, three years since it launched. Yeah. Um, I forget what were the other parts of your question. I've been talking um, so long on it. No, yeah, no,
0: that I like that comment quite a bit. Like that's it's good to have, especially over so many issues, being able to still have like a relatable hero for like modern yeah.
1: people yeah. reading. And I think she's super relatable, even if you're not, you know, a Muslim teenage girl yeah, exactly. in Jersey City. Like I grew up in a conservative Christian family. I can kind of empathize with a lot of that. Like, oh, I want to go like where the other kids are, but my parents aren't letting me. And it's clear throughout the comic, like her parents are conservative, but they also care about her really deeply. Mm-hmm. Like it's revealed at one point that her mom knows she's Miss Marvel and has known for a while, mm-hmm. and that but like didn't want to say anything because she didn't want to, like upset her daughter or whatever. That like her parents are involved and love her a lot, and I think that's important.
0: Definitely. But, um, I, the other part of my question was. What, what do you think are some differences, some strengths that uh, comic books have as an art form for storytelling that maybe a movie or a book uh, don't, and just how, um, yeah, just like, I don't know, contrast, whatever okay. you feel. Yeah, that?
1: so um, during undergrad, I did my senior um, capstone research project on the influence of Spider-Man comics on American popular culture. That obviously is no reason why I chose you for this (laughs) question. Yeah, Yeah, but so I'm really interested in cultural history and um, pop culture in history, etc. I think that there's a lot of scholarly room there, because a lot of people haven't written about it. But when I was researching for that, I came across a number of quotes that I don't know if I'll go so far as to fully endorse them, but I like where they're coming from because it's two things that I like. There's a number of um, scholars who have noted that there are really only only two original American art forms, um, or two art forms that are unique, or were uniquely created by Americans, by mm-hmm. citizens of the United States of America. And that's the Broadway musical and the comic book. Huh. That like, operas existed. Um, plays existed but the musical as we think of it is an invention of American theater that didn't exist in Europe before Americans invented it and then exported it and um, similarly comic books now exist in other countries and people you know, um, people make comic books in other languages or from other places, but that they were invented in America. And so they're one of the only two unique American art forms. I haven't studied American art forms enough to say whether or not they're the only two unique ones, but I like that idea that there's something about American culture that lends itself to the comic book, to this fusion of the written word and the visual image. Um, and I've read interviews with directors of comic book movies who say that that's part of the, um, the challenge is how do you translate something that's already a visual image but a still visual image into a moving visual image, which is what movies are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that comics also um, force people to be... It's almost like if you, if you ever took a poetry class or your English class in high school and you did poetry and um, you had poems like sonnets that have very firm structure Like, there's not a whole lot of room to wiggle around and just make whatever freeform thing you have. It has to rhyme in a certain way. It can only be a certain number of syllables. Um, But what that does is force you to be more creative in the constraints that you're given, right? And, you know, Shakespeare made a lot of sonnets, and they don't all sound alike, but technically they all follow the same pattern. Well, there's only so much space that you have to write things in comics and only so much space that you have to show things in comics because you're limited by the space on the page, and any time that a picture takes up a full page, you're edging out. Out text and anytime that text takes up a full page you're edging out picture and those things are both important yeah. and so you have these constraints placed on you con- creatively but it means or for comic book authors but it means that you have to be more creative with what you do with it that you try to Um, economize word choice as much as possible. So there's no Charles Mm Dickens-like writing in comics where it just goes on and on and on with the writing. But there's also sometimes where it's like it would take us like two pages worth of panels to describe this action. Or we can have, like, one little box text telling you that it happened off-screen and, like, what's the trade-off there? Yeah. So I really, I'm really, i interested in it as an art form in that way mm-hmm. and the type of decisions that have to be made. It's also a really low barrier-to-entry art form, hmm. um, which is to say that, like, it's really hard to make a living making comics. Like, there's not that many people who get to do it full-time. A lot of people are, like, freelance and do other things and illustrate other things and make comics for Marvel and DC as well. There's a relatively small cast of people who are the full-time writers and illustrators of comics. But at the same time... um, just about anyone can make and put out a web comic, and some webcomics have been phenomenally successful and you know have actually then gotten printed and put in books or um, Marvel and DC will hire people um, as freelance authors and that because it really honestly doesn't cost them that much in terms of initial investment to make yeah. like one four issue comic like right now I'm reading a comic about Mockingbird who's in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Bobby Morse Um, and I didn't really know anything about her character in comics and they're like, Hey, a limited four issue run, pick it up. And I picked it up and it was really good and I really enjoyed it. And apparently enough other people really enjoyed it. that They wrote in and told the executives how much they enjoyed it and it got turned into an ongoing series. So if something succeeds, then they can hire you. Um, on full time or to keep making it, but if it, something fails, well, you only really, as the company, we're funding like four issues of it anyway. And that's four issues for one comic among the like 50 comics you're putting out. Yeah. So it's, um, it allows for a lot of risk taking and creativity that novel publishing doesn't or movie publishing or producing doesn't because, you know, if a movie is a flop, you, that's, Easily a hundred million dollars down the drain. Yeah. If a novel is a flop, that's a lot of people's time that's just been wasted in the editing process, etc. That can go on for years. Comic books have a much faster turnaround time, and it enables people to take a lot of risks that I don't think they could take in other genres.
0: Uh, then it keeps it very much like an open field for for people to. I, I like open open entry. Obviously, that's very appealing. Um, and like movies is. It is not that way at all. No. not a lot of independent films, even yeah. negative. And theory. there's
1: a lot of people actually who end up writing or doing stuff with movies who started out with comics or were involved with that. Joss Whedon, who, you know, is kind of love hate relationship right now for a lot of fans, but he directed the Avengers movies thus far and all that. But he wrote X Men comics in the '90s for a while. Like that was one of the jobs yeah. that he did while he was trying to like establish himself as a screenwriter. Because screenwriting is a hard business to break into.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, obviously, it makes so much sense. But like the idea of balancing written word with like a still piece of art, like that's. I like that concept. Um,
1: do you have a question for me to? Yes. The next part? Um, so, as it, you probably already know, listeners, if you listened to the last episode, I was on. Um, Hunter and I are part of a Dungeons & Dragons group that meets yes. o- almost every week at this point. Um, but recently a television show came out on Netflix where Dungeons & Dragons features quite prominently mm-hmm. um, and that was surprising to me because like, I still kind of feel like most people don't really know what D&D is or it's at the very least not a relatable thing for them. It's something that those nerds do not yeah. something that we do like yeah. playing monopoly even though a lot of people hate it like it's a relatable thing like almost everyone's played a game of monopoly enough to know that they hate it mm-hmm. um, or you know maybe <laughs> they don't but most people i don't think have actually played dungeons and dragons but yet the tv show on netflix stranger things uses dungeons and dragons as a huge part of its framing narrative and how the main characters understand the plot the villain doesn't even have a name other than the name that's given to it By the boys because of their Dungeons and Dragons experience. So I guess I'm curious. Why do you think Stranger Things is so popular? Like, what what are people seeing in this that they relate to? Given that these seem like a bunch of really niche elements of like 1980s culture, and how many people would actually relate to that?
0: I think the fact that it is a lot from the 1980s is is what is attracting a lot of people. I, I think like the whole fantasy aspect and the sci fi aspect are fantastic and people are into that as well but there is like a people in uh our little uh like the college kids right now are looking back at the 80s very fondly and why that is i'm not sure i think it might have something to do with um 80s media a lot of times is uh i don't want to say simplistic but it's very much like this is the evil. This is the good. These are these people are our friends. This yeah. is the girlfriend, and it's like you got right. these like nice little roles, and occasionally, um, hardcore side characters that just drop <laughs> off and are totally forgotten because that's part of the '80s as well, um, and that's that's like I think it's kind of appealing right now with um, just the I mean uh, the where we are right now in twenty sixteen is it's not nice to look around at the state of the world and like we've been. We just celebrated the 15th anniversary for this this war we've been having that just, like, is never-ending, and you just get kind of desensitized to the violence of it, and then this election is just brutal, and both sides are just, there's so much ugliness in it. Um, And to look back at the 80s and see, like, middle-class America and people, like, just being friends and playing, like, this fantastical game in their basement, but then also dealing with uh, evil that is... Very obviously evil. Um, I don't know. I think that's very appealing for people. And as far as, like the whole, the the D and D side of it, I I mean, people today, our generation as well. I think. Um, the, there's the fantasy element, is so evident in. Um, I think. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, uh, I don't know. Like we grew up on Lord of the Rings and uh we were kind of eased into the fantasy in a way that uh I think was made it a very appealing to us as a kid. It was almost considered
1: normal. Yes. That like, you would be into fantasy stuff. It was cool to be into fantasy yes, stuff. Yes,
0: there you go, exactly. Like yeah. And like Star Wars as well when we were growing up, even though it was not that good, uh we didn't know when we were kids and it was it was fun for us. And I and I think uh looking back on the 80s and seeing the birth of something that's like such a great expression of of fantasy for you um without technology which is like kind of cool now as well um is is very appealing and uh to like also have them take those lessons of heroism and enact them in in real life is something that people like yearn for desperately um is to take like Simplistic heroism and be able to carry that out in real life. It's not nothing is usually that simplistic, um, and that I think it's fun for people. And it's just so well written. And the I mean, Eleven. That that girl might be one of the greatest young actors I've ever seen in my entire life.
1: She she definitely she definitely is phenomenal. But
0: yeah, I I love that. And um, speaking of which, if a one on a rider is awesome as well. And if you want to go back and see a movie that is from the eighties, that I, I, I think is her first claim to fame, is uh, Heather's is uh, yeah is really is I'm not even mincing words. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, definitely go
1: back and give that a look if you're into Stranger Things. So, so you, I guess what you're saying is that it's even though it's kind of a horror genre, yeah, it's still got a positive nostalgia surrounding it, Definitely. and the idea that there is like a good triumph thing at the well, spoilers, but yeah. you know <laughs> that like there is a good and evil in the story there, and also I don't know, maybe your opinion is different, but when I was watching it, I have to say like usually I'm used to the idea that like oh, it's small town Indiana, it's a rural setting. Mm-hmm creepy things are happening that means all of these people have horrible dark secrets you know that (laughs) like there's this idea that if you have like creepy supernatural type things happening in a show that there has to be non-supernatural creepiness that mirrors it in order to like showcase the darkness of man yeah in addition to that but like all of these people are pretty much good people yeah you know the sheriff has a lot of personal issues but, like, genuinely wants to find this kid and mm-hmm. wants to do a good job. And, like, the mom is struggling with her job. Uh, but also, like, also genuinely wants to yeah. be a good mother and want to provide for her children. And even, you know, Steve, the kind of jerk of a boyfriend figure that stands in for, like, the teen drama side of things. Like, he ends up not being, like, a terrible person in and of himself. He just is kind of a little selfish going on. You, you see him kind of grow up a bit. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I was just thinking that as you were talking about it. Like, it, did you get that same feeling of, like, fundamental optimism about these people being genuinely good people?
0: I did start out thinking that the cop was going to be a little bit more of an antihero, um, just the way they portrayed him at first. Uh, but, yeah, as I mean, as the show went on, it became very clear that good people are good people, bad people are bad people, um, especially with... Uh, like, just, I, I think especially with the government agents, it's so just, like, they're the guys with black suits. Like, you know who they
1: are. We don't even need to explain. (laughs) And the crazy part is that that's actually historically true. Like, obviously, we don't know if they gave little children, like, supernatural powers, but the whole idea of, like, these shadowy parts of the government that set up research locations in different parts of this um, country so that the Soviets wouldn't, like, know where they were set up and they were actively trying to research different technologies or stuff like that to in order to combat the Soviets. Like, that that whole element is is completely true. Now, obviously, the whole, (laughs) like, oh, we've turned this child into a, a living weapon who has telekinetic powers, that's probably not accurate but <laughs> i'm blanking on the name right now but there was an actual historical no program that was aimed at creating these research facilities kind of discreetly around the united okay, states okay. so that they wouldn't be things that the soviets could know where to target them
0: they didn't take kids though right not that i know presumably saying, not i kept thinking you were going to drop that bomb be like no. and there are several children that we have no idea where they went around dun, that dun, time dun. yeah um but yeah uh, do you do you think what do you think was a big pull for
1: um, Stranger Things? I think, first off, Netflix. The, oh, yeah. The, the binge-watching... I didn't mean to yeah. mention that. That helps. <laughs> but, yeah, the binge-watching nature of it, like, it's only eight episodes long. Yes. You can watch it all in one go and not even feel terrible about yourself. Like... Honestly, I think that you see them shift towards the eight episode format because 12 episodes, 12 one hour long episodes, that's like literally a 12 hour day. It's a long time. Whereas, like, eight episodes, eight episodes is like two four hour watching sessions with a break for lunch in the middle. Yeah. That's totally doable. <laughs> like, people don't feel guilty about binge watching it yeah. and they just watch all of it. And then they're super excited about it and they want more of it. And so they talk to their friends about it and get them to watch it. I think that definitely, I don't think that the show would have been as successful if it had aired on, like, USA or Starz or HBO or things like that. I also think Netflix is, like, committed to taking risks in ways that other, like, other people or producers don't seem to be. Yeah. That, like, and also not shying away from the implications of things. So, like a lot of early Netflix shows get a lot of flack for having a lot of nudity, etc. but it's because they were telling mm. stories where it kind of made sense to, to have that. Like, I don't really like Orange is the New Black, but if you're telling a story about prison and prison culture, like, there's a bunch of people living in communal areas, there's going to be nudity. Yeah. Now, you don't necessarily have to show that on screen, but Netflix just goes all in whenever they do something, and I think that you saw the good side of that with Stranger Things, where they just, they committed to the concept of, like, the children are are investigating and the teenagers are investigating, and the adults are investigating, and we've got all these plots going, and they're all kind of dark and sinister and creepy, but at the same time, you're never sitting there going, like, I'm uncomfortable about the fact they use child actors for this, you know? Yeah. Because, like, I'll be honest, there are some times on Game of Thrones where I'm sitting there going, there is a child on set. There is a child in this scene. (laughs) And it, again, makes sense for that medieval world uh, that's really dreary and bleak that Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones is set in, but it does sometimes make you feel uncomfortable just for the actors like the child actors whereas stranger things like what an opportunity for those kids to be in something serious that something that gets that gives them the opportunity to show off their acting chops that also isn't like that oscar bait edgy r-rated movie (laughs) directed by some guy you've never heard of
0: yeah you know and they like i said like all those kids, like
1: her name's like Millie something or another, the girl. Oh but yeah, she really is phenomenal. Yeah, actually.
0: they all were just like I was. Not a one of them was it like, oh my gosh, like this kid's got to read lines. Like no, they were so good and pulled it off so well. Yeah.
1: And, and working with child actors, as I understand, is just super difficult. Like oh yeah, I can a imagine. A lot of directors don't like doing it. So props to the writer dir- or the writers and directors of that show mm. because I think it's the same group of brothers that wrote and directed the yes, show yes, but um you know they clearly wrote it knowing they were going to have to deal with ch- child actors and then did so phenomenally yeah. and all the interviews i've seen with the kids they just have rave reviews to say about the i can't remember their names right now but the guys who created the show mm-hmm. they really understood how to work with child actors well
0: yeah and yeah, no, it's good to see something good uh rewarded as well as it was by um, the viewing right. audience um and the second season
1: coming soon so excited
0: um and with that i'll move off to a personal digression of mine that actually uh i had a different personal digression uh until earlier today i was listening to a podcast and it, something was brought up that i just wasn't aware of at all and it is uh, it has to do with lord of the rings um another fantasy and this is kind Of the season for fantasy for myself as fantasy football rolls around, as well as Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and Stranger Things just finishing up. Um, but it, it has to do with how um popular it was in the 60s and how it came around. Um, I mean, it was first introduced in the 30s, if I, I'm correct, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't received very well by academia, um, but generally the people liked it, um, in England and then as it came over to the United States, particularly in the 60s, uh, it really hit home with uh, the the hippies in particular. And, like, that culture yeah. really took to it as they saw certain themes uh, kind of championing their ideas. That, that was just so crazy to me, um, especially, uh, and I just could not let this go, but um, the Beatles read uh, Lord of the Rings, and they were... So taken by it, they wrote a screenplay. hmm I've heard of this, yeah. <laughs> Insane. And they had uh, John... Ringo wanted to be Gandalf. Ringo? Okay, so was John was going to be Gollum, Paul was going to be Frodo, Ringo was going to be Sam, and George was going to be Gandalf. That's what it was. And uh, as it happened, Tolkien got a hold of this screenplay <laughs> and was just so mad. <laughs> Especially, and he wasn't, I don't think he, as I understand it, he wasn't necessarily upset that the Beatles were trying to do it. He was upset with just the way the screenplay went. It turns out that the Beatles really liked getting themselves out of every situation by flying away on eagles, and <laughs> Tolkien was just like, that ruins the whole story of every single time you just call for an eagle and you get carried <laughs> off wherever you want to go. would have. If I had thought that was a good like, tool, I would have just done that right off the bat and had them drop the ring off in Mount Doom. Uh, and that was just absurd to me um, that was even ever attempted and that I mean yeah, no. honestly that's my whole digression I just thought that was insane and I could not bring that up
1: that that is great um, my personal digression is also history related because that's kind of my life right now history grad school I'm reading a lot of history and not a whole lot of anything else because that that is my life is nice. reading all of those books but um, I'm taking a class on religious history. Um, in America specifically, and so reading about the Puritans, and, you know, my digression is, I guess, we have this image of, you know, the Puritans is very, very strict, obviously, that, like, that super-Christian society, very, like, the nuclear family is everything yeah. and all that, and that's, that's true. That's not wrong, but I was shocked to learn that, um, apparently... During between the 1620s and the end of the 1600s, so the, so like the 80 year period that the Puritans were first in Massachusetts and New England, um, they kept great records throughout the whole colonial period because they're super orderly people. Yeah. but um, as a result we can look through that and we know like 100% factually know we have the records that there were over a hundred divorces or 100 divorces during that period. Wow um, most of them initiated by women. Um, and we have, like, who initiated and the reasoning for it. And um, infidelity is obviously, like, a big list there. And mm-hmm. most people have studied, like, biblical doctrines of divorce. Like, that's the, the standard one that Jesus talks about. Mm-hmm. But um, impotence was also a commonly cited reason that the nuclear family yeah. and that um, having the family and passing on your faith to the next generation was so important to the Puritans that... Um, If your husband was incapable of getting you with child, that was potentially a reason to divorce him because he couldn't give you that family. Um, And I just, I thought it was very interesting. It goes against what we think of when we think of the Puritans. Empowering. Because, like, it clearly, like, we associate divorce with kind of the moving away from that religious based society, right? Mm. As, you know, you hear the statistics today about how 50% of marriages end in divorces, and you'll see various moral pundits talk about, oh, it's because of the breakdown of religion in American society. And I'm not saying that the Puritans, like, divorces were happening left and right. Like, they clearly weren't, but in an 80-year period, it happened 100 times, which means that it was happening more than once per year in a relatively small community. Obviously, it's growing... Pretty rapidly, But those first 80 years, you're talking about a couple small settlements that are starting to get larger that pretty much everyone probably would have known someone who was divorced Yeah. at that point um, because they're yeah. small but they're interconnected. And yeah. I just thought that was fascinating. It goes against kind of what my preconceived notions of the Puritans were. Um, and anyway, that's my digression. It was just something I was yeah. not expecting to see in the research that I did last week.
0: Does that give you a little bit more... Um like, respect for the Puritan culture, as you understand it?
1: Um, I I, I do think so, a little bit. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of credence to the theory, although some people take it too far, that you can kind of judge how a um, society treats their women... Historically, based on like what the property laws and the divorce laws look like. So Puritan property laws, if you're a woman, you still can't own property. There's no, none of that. So they're not... Let's, of course not. <laughs> yeah, let, let's not get the idea that Puritans are like huge advocates for equality, etc. cetera. Yeah. Okay. They had very defined gender roles, but those gender roles were just different than what they were in Europe because they viewed Europe as being degenerate, etc. So uh, yeah. I just, I think it's interesting as you look at that, that you can look and see where their views on divorce are more, what we would call today probably more progressive, but that they were centered on making sure that marriage was this covenant relationship of two people, you know, working together to advance the kingdom of God by having children and living in the land, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you can disagree with that definition if you want, but like, that's how they looked at it. And to that end, if the relationship wasn't helping fulfill those goals, then it needed to end. And that's what divorce was. And so I just think that's interesting, because we tend to think of male-dominated societies as the type of societies where if divorce is allowed, it's only allowed for men to divorce their wives, not for wives to divorce their husbands. Um, But that's very recently. Yeah, exactly. But that was not the case in at least early Puritan New England. Now, later on, they become less Puritan and more like the other colonies, Ah. as more and more people move into New England that aren't Puritans. know there's still this puritan Mm -hmm. background but it kind of changes um but yeah that that is my digression
0: as that happens do they kind of go back on their the abilities that they give women for divorces or i don't know i haven't i haven't researched that far that's funny in advance at at this point just a popular culture moved them in the other direction that would be yeah weird um very good very good digressions um do you have a song for us this week?
1: Yeah, I'm going to keep the history train ro- rolling cuz I'm <laughs> nice. me, but um I wouldn't expect anything like, less. <laughs> yeah, I'm fascinated with war protest songs, just like the whole genre. Yeah. I think they're super interesting. I don't always agree with um, all of them. They tend to come out of a very like that hippie side of culture, particularly the Vietnam War protest songs. Mm-hmm. But um, I really enjoy the song, and it's a bit of a longer one, so sorry, it'll be like six minutes on the end of the episode. Fine. Um, but the song God on Our Side by Bob Dylan, it's from uh, yeah. the same album as The Times They Are Changing, which is, of course, the protest song that everybody knows. Yeah. But, um, and I, lo- I, I do love The Times They Are Changing, but I actually like God on Our Side better mm. because um, that's something that I run into a lot in historical research is people... either people claiming in history oh God's on our side that's why we won this battle or people looking backwards and saying oh well God was on the American side and that's why he provided the fog so that Washington and his soldiers could escape and it's Bob Dylan just kind of deconstructing that whole mythos of you know God's on our side in this battle, etc., and how that changes over time. And he talks about how, you know, in World War II, God was on our side against the Germans, but then World War II ended, and now the Germans have God on their side again? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, that this is kind of a unrealistic standard. And you know, he kind of ends the song with the conclusion: if God's on our side, he'll stop the next war. But it's just a really interesting war protest song that has a lot of theological implications and i don't see that in a lot of other war protest songs they're about the you know the military industrial complex or things like that but they don't really focus on that religious dimension and that was a huge thing during the cold wars people claiming you know those godless communists uh, god's on yeah. the side of the godly american free market culture as opposed to the communist godless c- culture yeah. and it's just a really interesting look at that draw your own conclusions on whether you agree with it But I just really enjoy the song. So, hope the listeners enjoy it, too.
0: Yeah, love Bob Bob Dylan, love this conversation, and you guys have a good week. Thanks for coming on, John. Glad to be here.
2: Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest I started and brought up there the laws to abide And that the land that I live in has got on its side All oh, the history books tell it They tell it so well The cavalry's charged The Indians fell The cavalry's charged The Indians died For the country was young With God on its side The Spanish-American War had its day And the Civil War too was Soon late And the names of the heroes I was made to memorize With guns in their hands And God on their side The First World War, boys It came and it went The reason for fighting I never did get But I learned to accept it Accept it with pride For you don't count the dead When God's on your side The Second World War Came to an end We forgave the Germans And then we Though they murdered six million In the ovens they fried The Germans now to have God on their side I've learned to hate the Russians All through my whole life If another war comes hits them we must fight To hate them and fear them To run in to hide And accept it all bravely With God on my side But now we got weapons Of chemical dust If fire them we're forced to Then fire them we must One push of the button And it shot the world wide And you never ask questions when God's on your side. Through many dark hours I've been thinking about this That Jesus Christ was Betrayed by a kiss But I can't think for you You'll have to decide Whether Judas Iscariot Had God on his side So now as I'm leaving I'm weary as hell They're confused and I'm feeling ain't no tongue can tell The words fill my head and I fall to the floor. That if God's on our side He'll stop the next war